Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10, 28. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to Above Average Intelligence. You know why we're called Above Average Intelligence? Well, in part, it's because we deal with intelligence issues. And in part, it's because our two co-hosts, myself and my partner here, we have above average intelligence, or we average out that way. Um, I bring it down a little bit. My name is David Rothkopf. Mark Polymeropoulos brings it up a lot. Um, how are you doing today, Mark? I think you have to start referring to me as Professor Polymeropoulos, as I am Going uh, just after this, I'm going to go down to Lexington, Virginia, to give some uh, some talks at the, the Virginia Military Institute, and then I head off to the Citadel um, uh, after that, uh, where I'm going to uh, give a give a talk on ethics. And I think I mentioned it last week, or I mentioned it sometime, but uh, I'm not sure if I've mentioned it on the air with you all. I'm actually next fall. I'm going to be teaching at the Citadel as an adjunct professor. So you now have to call me Professor Polly. Well, that that adds up to our, you know, <laughs> that 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 fits into our above average intelligence exactly. identity. Right. Um, uh, so folks, this, this show has gotten a lot more classed up since you last uh, joined us. Uh, we're here to talk about, you know, the, the issue that is the, the biggest issue um, uh, in, on the minds of most folks right now, and that's the Middle East. Uh, and we are very fortunate to have with us Michael Patrick Malloy, who's the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and is co-founder of the Lobo Institute. Uh, Mick, welcome. How are you? 
I'm doing good, David. I'm coming to you from the TWA Hotel at the JFK Airport, which if you haven't been to, is like stepping back into 1962. It's, uh, yeah, is it, didn't they make the hotel out of the old terminal? The Aero Sarin yeah, and exactly what it is. The Aero exactly Sarin and Terminal there. Yeah, that's it's just a kind of a cool building. I'm glad they turned it into something. Having said that, being at JFK is always bad. It's just the worst <laughs> yeah, right. airport. Um, yeah. I'm just coming back from, from Israel. So well, once it once you get through customs, maybe it's a little bit better. Um, well, welcome back. And obviously that's what we want to talk about. And I'd like to do a kind of a scene setter question and then do a deeper dive into some of the things you you were exposed to in in Israel. But, you know, as we look at this, you know, on October 6th, 2023, the United States was on its way out of the Middle East, did not want to be involved there very much, was shifting to the Indo-Pacific. At the time, we also seemed to be supporting Ukraine, which is something we don't do anymore, apparently. Um, uh, I'm just saying that to rile markup, by the way. But um, uh, uh, we, you know, since then, we embraced the Israelis, said blank check to Bibi, essentially. Uh, we, we, we have pushed on some issues like humanitarian uh, aid and then, you know, asking them to constrain the fighting. Um, but uh, the main response from Bibi is, you know, go jump in a lake. Uh, I'll do whatever I want to do. Um, and uh, at the same time, we then, you know, that ramped up problems with the Houthis. And so we said, well, we'll strike to, you know, quiet the Houthis down. And that has led into a series of strikes. And as we speak today, um, the, the biggest series of strikes uh, in this conflict with the Houthis was in the past 24 hours. Um, uh, at the same time, um, uh, you know, there have been ongoing attacks on U.S. bases throughout the region. That one resulted in a death of three people at Tower 22 on the Syrian-Jordanian border. Uh, and that resulted in the largest U.S. series of strikes against the uh, uh, IRGC uh, f- forces uh, in the area and some of those they backed uh, of hitting 85 targets with um, sort of everything that we could throw at them, including the kitchen sink, uh, and a promise of more to come. So uh, we've talked about this on many of our podcasts, and one of the questions that came up in some of our more recent uh, conversations um, was that this is all starting to feel a little quagmire That's not a word, really, but I'm, I'm going to ask you it, it, to, to, to take it and run with it and say, is this feeling quagmire to you or not? Uh, so I guess uh, one way to look at it is, is this is going to be a constant cycle of which we've probably been doing for 40 years when it comes to dealing with Iran. So if it, if quagmire, quagmire, and I guess if you say a lie, it just becomes, a yeah, exactly. Um, That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> It, it, right is 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 somewhat like a cycle that continues for a long period of time. Then I guess we are in that, um, but it's not necessarily of our choosing. And 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 if we're in it, we need to be in it. Uh, you know, not to be cliche, to, but to win it. Right? It rhymes. I had to say. Yeah, I knew you. Um, I, but, as soon as you said, yeah. if we're in it, we knew where you're going. 
Yeah. But one, a couple of things I would say is there's certain, you know, phrases that people say all the time. And, and, and some of them I think we should just stop saying. And one of them is pivoting from the Middle East. Right. I think every administration says that uh, just as like a throwaway line. And I get the strategic uh, prioritization of the Indo-Pacific being uh, the top. Um, but there's no reason to say pivot because all that does is tell our partners and allies uh, that we don't tend to be there very long and we will be there forever and we need to be there forever and we need to have a global engagement plan because that's what support the United States. So I would say that um, that that kind of talk needs to end. Uh, and also, if you think about it, when you say you're going to pivot away from somebody physically, that's that's like turning your back, right? So when I go to the Middle East, and yes, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East, just like Mark, um, that is what people bring up to me all the time. The United States needs to just accept that you're going to be fully engaged with the Middle East in perpetuity because it's in your own interest. Um, and every time you talk about pivoting, you just reduce your influence in, in, in the long-term uh, part. But uh, I think we're seeing... Uh, and I just got back, as I already referenced, from Israel. I think you're seeing uh, a significant effort uh, by this administration to push things in Gaza as it relates to reducing the level of kinetic activity into a lower intensity uh, combat situation and then quickly move toward uh, resolving the strategic uh, efforts to defeat Hamas militarily. But also, and I know we're going to talk about it, to substantially increase humanitarian aid because it is not an uh, overstatement that the crisis that's going on in Gaza needs to be addressed immediately. At a time, they're also trying to deal with a very, what I would say, aggressive Iranian proxy network, which seems hell-bent on turning this into a regional conflict. And we, of course, don't want to see that. So we're, we're seeing a lot of tensions, as uh, Secretary Blinken said, it might be the most uh, tense time since, you know, the 1970s uh, in the region. Um, well, Professor, what do you think of that? And what's your question? So that's, yeah, that, I mean, I, I think that it's a, it's an excellent overview. There's so many ways we can, we can kind of go at that. Um, let's, and, and I, I do want to, I do want us to talk about the humanitarian uh, crisis because really, you know, Mick and, and some of his, uh, and some of even my, you know, former colleagues have actually probably uh Strange that you'd have former agency and, and DOD officials care so much about humanitarian concerns, but we do. Um, but let's talk about that in a sec. I just want to kind of go back just to the to the strikes um, uh, itself. And, and one thing, David, that you that you noted, but I'm not sure is actually accurate, is that we actually did not strike IRGC um, uh, uh, targets. I mean, they were they were affiliated. They were they were weapons depots or intelligence centers, but they were not. We we purposely did not target uh, uh, Iranian officials on the ground. Now, whether that was because they left or not, but Mick and I, you've talked about this offline is, is you know, I think as you, as you think about this um, uh, kind of transition or, or uh, if, if it's correct that we're going to see an additional series of strikes, perhaps this first round was just at the proxies. But I guess the question is, you know, do you think the next round will be actually going after Iranians on the ground, not in Iran, but in Syria and Iraq? Is that kind of step two on this? Um, and again, the whole idea is to kind of regain this, uh, this notion of deterrence. Yeah, so as uh, 
you know, one of the things that Secretary Battis used to say is like our our strategic goals should be constant and known. Our operationals should be less so, it'd be more ambiguous. So I would say that we need to stop saying necessarily that, you know, uh, you know, proportionality and all. I think we need to be ready to take it to where it needs to go to get to a level of deterrence. And what I mean by that is, yes, I think the, the recent strikes were more substantial, and that's a good thing. Obviously, that's because they killed three of our brave soldiers in uh, Jordan. Um, but that could happen again easily. Like just last night, the six SDF uh, soldiers were killed on our base, right? They could have been ours, our, our soldiers, right? Um, and of course, we care about our partners being killed on our base too. So this, it's it, if they keep launching these things at us, they're going to get through. Even the best defenses that have weaknesses. So this is going to happen again. I would have argued that we should have been responded much quicker. Some of my friends at the Pentagon were explaining the weather and getting surging and all that, picking targets. From my experience, the, the Pentagon's always ready to go with targets at any time, at any time. So, and I think part of that was done to be fair to the administration to, as you said, Mark, get some of the IRGC guys out of there. So there wouldn't have been a, a substantial IRGC killed in, in their warehouses, et cetera. Uh, I do think, and I think um, Jake Sullivan, non-answer recently, uh, when they ask about targeting in Iran is an indicator. I think it's an indicator that the Pentagon's already been presenting targets in Iran and specific targets in Syria, in Iraq, to your point, Mark, uh, that are IRGC targets. And I think that escalatory ladder, if you will, is something that is very real and it will push the administration if they continuously attack. And, I, and as you well know, there's always discussions on, well, is Iran got guiding these proxies is it really response they keep providing the weapons that they're shooting at us so in my my world that makes them complicit with the attacks if they don't want them to or they're doing something they don't want them to do from our world world we would stop giving them our partner forces the weapons that they're using to do something we're not for so i do think that this is if it keeps happening that this is going to escalate and it, it needs to quite frankly because we got to get to a level of deterrence that matters and that only when it comes to Iran in my uh experience is direct impacts on their uh their interests. Yeah, by the way, I I, I do want to say and to clarify and I I'm sure this is what you meant that when you you refer to Jake Sullivan's non-answer, it's it's what happened on the Sunday shows yesterday when he was asked about whether they would attack Iran, and he said, uh, "I'm not going to comment on what we're going to attack," and that's the correct answer. I mean, but you know, per your comment from Secretary Mattis, um, there's no point for us to tell people exactly what we're going to do. Although waiting three days before we uh, responded to the Tower Twenty Two attacks was a form of communications saying get out, don't, you know, don't have your people there. Uh, and, you know, that's the fine line they want to walk. They want to walk the line of achieving a degree of a deterrence without um, something that's significantly escalatory that gets us into a major region-wide uh, war. Um, some of that involves also discovering what tactics work and what tactics don't work, and that takes a while. Um, uh, that seems to be what's going on with the Houthis right now, where they're saying, okay, well, we'll let oh, maybe what we should do is go after their um, missile stocks. Um, 
uh, and uh, you know, maybe, 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 maybe that'll work a little bit better. Um, uh, there's, you know, some, some, some indication that it will, but, you know, at the end of the day, the best way to reduce the tensions across the region is to find our way to some kind of solution in Gaza. Um, which is not to say there weren't problems in the region prior to this. Um, but it is to say that this has inflamed the region. Uh, you've just been in Israel. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I think people get the impression that, you know, uh, you know, Israel speaks with one voice. Um, that's never been the way in Israeli politics. It's, it's a very vibrant, diverse political scene. Uh, and so what Bibi Netanyahu or Ben Gavir or Smodiak say is not necessarily where the rest of Israelis are. What's your sense of the national mood about Gaza? So I, from my sense of the national mood, uh, I totally agree with everything you said about the, the very diverse political positions in Israel. But there is generally a cross-the-board support for the war in Gaza. Uh, they do view it as an absolute necessity to eliminate, you know, I'm speaking in general and I'm speaking for them, but eliminate the military capacity of Hamas, that if they can't do that, then it's unacceptable. Uh, obviously, in, including the return of the hostages that are still alive. But I do think there is support across the political spectrum in Israel for the war. Uh, the question then is, how it's being executed. Yeah, there's support for in the, from the United States government for the strategic aims, but there is certainly questions on how it's being conducted, the tactics used uh, that led to, you know, what we believe uh, uh, 27,000 killed, according to uh, the health ministry in Gaza, uh, but also a need for the humanitarian aid to get into where it needs to get in because there's such a bottleneck. Now that is very contentious, I think, uh, or is contentious in Israel because of, because of the hostage situation. And I think, although they won't say it, it's being used in a, in a capacity of almost leverage. Uh, but I think ultimately the, the population in Israel is for the overall strategic objectives. Almost every Israeli knows somebody was killed on October 7th. Almost every Israeli knows somebody who's fighting in the IDF in, uh, in Gaza right now. So it is, it is very much... Uh, the other thing that I would say that's, you know, whether I'm talking to IDF generals or the bartender who is an IDF reservist, they all accept that they're going to have to go to war against Hezbollah. It's not for them. It's just they don't want it. They know it'll be super destructive to the economy and, and everything and included in that. But almost all of them will tell you it's going to happen and even refer to sometime in March. It's almost like they've been given uh, you know, a warning order that they will be a time when they shift from Gaza and they focus on Hezbollah and Lebanon, primarily because they have 70,000 Israeli citizens that are sitting in hotels, uh, primarily in Tel Aviv, that won't go back until Hezbollah is pushed uh, back to the line that in the UN Resolution 1701, uh, the Latani River, right? Um, 
because the, so almost every Israeli will tell you that that's going to happen. And I don't think that's it's something that we think is 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 uh, necessarily a given, but it's something that they do, and we might want to start listening to that. Mark, yes, yeah, so, you know, you bring up such a good point there, and and you know, I mean, if you see, you know, a whole bunch of us have have certainly said for some time, keep your eyes on the north, um, which is uh, uh, and and you, one can make the argument that any kind of you know winding down the campaign in some fashion to a lower intensity in Gaza would free up some of the forces. Um, uh, to kind of for you know rest and recuperate for a future conflict in, in Lebanon. I, I would say the administration certainly seems to be focused on this. You know, you have an NSC officials kind of shuttling back and forth to to Lebanon for sure. And I think that you know if you actually think about where the U.S. really could become heavily engaged, um, that would be on a full fledged you know war between Hezbollah uh, and Israel, where you have and you know these aren't 107 millimeter rockets that Hamas has. These are um, missiles kind of raining down, uh, and which would conceivably overwhelm the Iron Dome system. So something certainly to be to be concerned about. And you know, and I and I think that you know, in, in this case, David will be very very uh, uh, surprised that I say this. You know, this is where diplomacy really does matter. See, David, I'm actually advocating for diplomacy. I can't here. I can't believe it, Mark. <laughs> Usually, you just want to go in and kill people. So uh... Usually, but in, in this case, uh, uh, hopefully. Um, uh, you know, level heads will, will prevail. Let's let's shift just a, 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 a bit to the humanitarian situation in Gaza. And I think one of the things that, of course, you know, everything is so political in the United States. So, you know, you can, you know, it's possible for one to say, yes, Israel absolutely reserves um, the right to respond. Um, uh, but also, you know, the, 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 the tragedy that this, you know, uh, the humanitarian tragedy that has ensued in the Gaza Strip is, is, is pretty extraordinary. And so I commend you, Mick, and some of your, you know, your friends and colleagues for trying to address this. Can you, in, from your trip there, give us a sense of, of what it's like in Gaza? Um, and then what are some of the things that are conceivable that the United States can do with, uh, you know, uh, with Israel's blessing, frankly, and throw this uh, on top of it, the, the kind of, you know, burgeoning scandal of, of, of UNRWA, um, uh, the UN Relief Works Agency, and, and, and kind of the suspension of, uh, of funding um, to UNRWA by multiple countries, and you know how. So how does this all kind of mesh together to when, when if there's a ceasefire or if there's not, but but getting assistance and aid um, to the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip who are really suffering? I mean that that's not a that should not be a controversial uh, uh, issue, at least in my mind. Uh, I agree, Mark. And uh, so if you look at it, two point two million people live there. Before the war, sixty seven percent of them relied on food aid. Right now, now a hundred percent rely on food aid. Before the war, about 500 trucks plus per day were, were going into Gaza. Now we're down around 144 trucks a day. So 67%, 100%, less less food coming in, more people relying on it. So it's it's simple math, right? And it's a, it, is a, it is a serious crisis. So there's about, I think, a quarter of the population from my conversations with uh, UN folks out there are essentially starving there and and about 75 or plus are down to one meal minus a day uh and of course the aid that gets in is looted almost immediately and then they then gangs not just hamas are turning around and selling right so it's free food that's then have that's then um palestinians have to pay for uh it's so and then and you take that so that's food about half of the humanitarian aid that's already been sent to go in is sitting in warehouses in Egypt. Half of it. A lot of it's spoiling. A lot of vaccines are expiring. 
um, serious problems getting the aid, even that's being donated. And it's being donated in large numbers, but it's not getting in because it has to go through the Rafa crossing, which, of course, is from Egypt into Gaza uh, or uh, Karim Shalom crossing. And there's some political issues with that because it's uh, Israel. So it's bottlenecked up there. The fighting, of course, is in Khan Yunus, which is pretty intense, but it's also expected to go down to Rafa. When it goes to Rafa, but it's, it's going to go to Rafa, that is going to impact the crossing even more substantially. I don't even know if you can get anything in aid in there when the fighting is right on the actual checkpoint. So there is major concern on just basic food and sanitary water. But then you also have 85% of the dwellings in Gaza have been damaged to a point that they're uninhabitable. So I was just there. It rained almost the entire time. It was about 50 degrees. If you think about a population that's already on the verge of starvation out in the rain, uh, it, it is in, I mean, 27,000 weeks, we believe, had been killed. The World Health Organization believes that that many more will be die from starvation, lack of medicine, uh, and, and, and the like. So this is, this is a crisis that I do think the United States should be, and I think we are, uh, pushing to lead on resolving this. But we need to do so with our partner, Israel, because they have legitimate concerns about where the aid's coming from and what's in it. So if we do it in, in conjunction with them, we can both address their valid security concerns. I mean, there's somehow all these weapons uh, got into Gaza, because if you talk to the IDF soldiers, which I have, everywhere they go, it's, you know, there's guns everywhere, every house, every, you know, under every mattress, all that stuff. We have to do it with Israel, but it needs to be done. They need There needs to be more channels, open corridors, if you will. I would argue uh, for a maritime corridor, uh, and a lot of people are arguing for that right now, because you can bring in so much more aid at different parts of Gaza, because now the main road, Saladin, is destroyed. And so even coming up, it's 25 miles long, roughly, coming up from Rafa, they don't even get past Wadi Gaza, which is in the middle. Like they can't even get past that. So if you don't bring in aid from uh, the sea, um, you won't even get aid to a lot of people. So the, and then hopefully there'll be more uh, entry points in, in from Israel, Amos and Carney. Uh, uh, Those are other two. But it's 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 all the above is what we should be looking at. And I know Secretary Blinken is pushing that as he always does on this trip. But we need to get that aid into Gaza soon, or we're going to have even more uh, human just misery and, and death in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, uh, hard to believe, though, that is. Uh, it does seem likely. Um, uh, and I want to ask you a couple of follow-up questions on that. This is the point in the show where we say to folks who are not members, you really should be members because uh, if you were, you'd be able to listen to the rest of the podcast, which is the bonus content, the members-only content. Um, and all that takes is going to the dsrnetwork.com and clicking on membership, and it's $5 a month. And it will be for the rest of this month. And then it's going to go up. So this is a really good chance to come in and support what we're doing, which is this kind of work. We, you know, All we do at the DSR Network is expert conversations on big policy issues of every sort. Uh, nobody else does that. And uh, we think you, uh, you'd benefit from joining. Uh, but for now, 
If you're not a member, uh, bye-bye. And if you are a member, uh, stand by.